Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast, Extra Bits, our little gift to you podcast subscribers. With me, Harriet Minter, but this week, no Natalie or Emma as they're off on holiday. Instead, I'm joined by vocal coach and presenter Carrie Grant and writer and broadcaster Jenny Trent Hughes. We're talking to Natalie Collins, who is a campaigner around domestic violence. She tells us about some of the situations she's seen, why it's so bad in the UK, and her own personal story. Just a little warning, if you've experienced domestic violence, some of the things you hear could be upsetting. Underwear, armpit hair, many imitators, but no one compares. Badass Women's Hour XL with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio. One, two, now, the stats around domestic abuse in the UK are genuinely terrifying. On average, women are assaulted by a partner 35 times before they first report it. And 85% of women subjected to abuse seek help five times before they get the support they need. Which, when we look at the numbers of women facing that abuse, is heartbreaking. Our next guest has had personal experience of this and now works with victims and perpetrators of domestic abuse to try and change the conversation. Natalie Collins, welcome to Badass Women's Hour. Thank you for having me. Um, So this is, it's such a big and important topic. And yet when I read those stats, I don't understand how we are not talking about it all the time, all day, every day. Why does it not get, how are these stats possible in this day and age? Well, I think it's one of those things, it's not actually that surprising. So up until about... A hundred years ago, men literally owned women, like under law. <laughs> so the idea that kind of we all now live in a world where that's not the norm in the West, it is in other parts of the world. Um, so the idea that after thousands of years of men dominating women, we'd suddenly in a hundred years have solved the problem is pretty unrealistic. And so in some ways, we're still dealing with this heritage of a, of cultures and laws and history in which male domination of women was the norm. Um, and I think it's, it's only just in the last few days decades that we started to see that this is a public issue not a private issue there was a law in the late 1800s that said that you weren't allowed to beat your wife between 10 at night and 6 in the morning because of the noise (laughs) and so you know we've moved a long way from that and that's really positive but obviously things have also changed in terms of digital culture so the ways that um, a man or, or potentially a woman can abuse their partner have drastically increased in terms of how digital culture does that as well. That's one of the things I want to talk about. We talk about domestic abuse as something that men do to women, but that's not always the case, right? No, so about 92% of defendants in domestic abuse-related crime are male. So we're talking about 8% 
perpetrators who are female. The majority of men who are abused are abused by male partners. Um, so the perpetrators are generally male. That's not to say women can't be abusive. We've all known some awful women, right? You know, mm-hmm. um, So it's not that women can't be terrible. It's just that women usually have less opportunity to be terrible um, because of the wider social factors around that. Um, sorry, Julie. No, I was going to say, um, I am uh, and I am the ambassador for a charity called Advance, which is a big domestic abuse uh, charity. And I've recently started working with them. The thing that fascinates me the most, or one of the things that fascinates me the most, is who, because I think a lot of us actually have an image in our mind as to who gets abused. Mm-hmm. And we always, so many women feel that, oh, that well, that would never happen to me. And we have a lot of meetings and things where where a lot of our clients come and there are barristers, there are people in finance. I mean, it completely runs the gamut. Any woman can be domestically abused. It's not a class thing. It's not an education thing. It's not an age thing. And I think that that's one of the things also that we need to start thinking about. Do you agree? Yeah, I think one of the challenges is that most people who are being abused don't recognise they're being abused. So it's not even that once we are being abused, we go, oh, now I fit into that category that I didn't think I fitted into. That psychologically is very, very dangerous to accept I've been, I'm, I'm being abused. I've been subjected to abuse because suddenly that puts my whole life into a different framework. If it's just a bad relationship or if he only does it because or if if it's about these sorts of things, then I don't really have to deal with the horror that this is something very, very serious. And the reason why we see a lot of victim-blaming attitudes in society, it's not all about people being horrible. The reason we have this, uh, this idea of what a victim looks like is because we want to believe that we're safe and we want to believe that the people we care about are safe. And so we think, right, well as long as we don't take these actions as long as we don't go to those places wear those clothes whatever it is we'll be safe and actually it's very scary to live in a world where it doesn't matter what we do it doesn't matter how much self-esteem we've got it doesn't matter whether we um, are very competent whether we have lots of money that doesn't mean that somebody isn't going to abuse us and that's a very scary place to, to exist and so people want to believe it's those those women over there and as you say when we start to engage with this issue we suddenly discover this is a quarter of women and it's not a quarter of women from a particular socioeconomic society. I think also uh, the woman that you uh, go into the the relationship as is not always the same person that you become. And I think that's often the issue is that there are many women that would say, I'd never get myself into a situation like that. Uh, And it's not that you go out on the first date and some violence happens. You go, right, well, I know I'm never doing that again. I think it's when it gradually creeps in and you are undermined, you're undermined, you're undermined verbally, verbally, verbally. When all of that kind of manipulation is going on the person that you then need to be in order to get out of the relationship has been so uh, demoralized and diminished that you're, you know, even the wisest of us can can end up in very unwise situations. That's it. It'd be really handy if every abuser had a tattoo on their forehead, yeah. forehead that said, Let's I'm an that. abuser. I mean, it, you know, I'm, I'm all for maybe some vigilante justice. We could start some kind of, you know, tattooing going on every time we discover a man. And that's, the problem is that the focus is so often on women. And this is the problem. This is a problem with men. Um, you know, we talk about often when I do this work and wherever I go, people ask, oh, why doesn't she leave? Um, and, you know, everybody who's done any work on this for any length of time that's the question that's the question a lot of listeners he'll be thinking why don't women leave and the, the response to that is why aren't you asking why doesn't he stop 
why is your question about what she should be doing when actually she's doing nothing wrong she's getting on with her life she's having a relationship he's the one behaving illegally immorally unethically um and so there's something about as a society that focus on on her and actually the reason why it's so hard to leave is because of his behavior he will isolate as one of the key things an abuser does is isolate us from family and friends and strip of us of anything that gives us strength so if somebody is has has a faith that gives them strength that that faith will be emptied of any power and will just be a, a weapon to beat that that person with um their their relationships will be gradually undermined and that might be something like just saying oh how well do you know natalie and you say yeah i know really well and she you say you say why he says oh no reason i just wondered and suddenly (laughs) that there's just this subtle like well what does he know about natalie it might be by um encouraging surprising us with tickets to the theater when we're supposed to go out with our friends and we think oh that's really lovely it's the beginning of the relationship okay go on then i'll i'll uh, i'll give up on that it's the level of intensity all of this gradually undermining us um so an abuser will create vulnerability somebody who is being abused doesn't necessarily start off with any higher level of vulnerability than anyone else but they become um isolated stripped of their their strength and eventually get to the point where they think i can't i can't survive on my own in your book it says uh the the strap line is couples conflict and the capacity for change i'm very uh taken by that capacity for change so can people change? So I am um, for a, for a while. I worked on um, a perpetrator program with men who had been violent or abusive. And in the UK, the national organisation who work on accrediting perpetrator work is called Respect. So if anybody is listening to this and they're thinking, oh, actually, I can recognise those behaviours in somebody I know, then um, they could contact the Respect Perpetrator um, phone line and and get some advice around that. And um, and so there's two types of perpetrator programs in the UK. There's ones that are court mandated where men who been abusive are forced to go on them they're not very effective because if you're forced to go somewhere you're not really going to be interested in changing and then there's ones that are voluntary so where a guy um, and there are there are some perpetrator programs for women but it's generally men um, they can go and say actually I want to change my behaviour I want to do things differently and so in those programs most of what it's about is it's about challenging the beliefs that men have so one of the things that we uh, understand about abuse often the sort of the wider societal idea is that men who abuse must be broken they must have something wrong with them that makes them really sad inside so they can't help but be abusive because what we can't imagine is that anybody would be abusive unless they couldn't help it unless they were out of control which is why the book's called out of control but actually an abuser is seeking control and the reason why someone is abusive is two things because they benefit from it it is absolutely beneficial to be abusive i get somebody who cooks all my meals does whatever i want looks after the kids gives me sex on demand never argues with me i never have to take responsibility for anything it's always someone else's fault i get the status of being a good partner and good parent without actually having to be one so the first thing is it's about recognizing and challenging men to say okay so this these benefits that you're recognizing what are the actual costs that you're not and the costs are usually to your partner and children so some of it's about recognizing what is the impact of this behavior that currently you don't actually really care about very much and the second thing is it's about challenging beliefs because somebody who's abusive believe that they own their partner and they are entitled to do what they want to their partner and so it's about challenging that i uh, i worked with one uh, in one group where a guy came in and we always do this check-in and he he, uh, he said oh it all kicked off at home before i came out i said oh what happened he said well 
my partner, she wanted to go out for a meal with her family because she's irrational. And I said she couldn't. And it all kicked off because she's irrational. And I was well said, well, what's irrational about wanting to go for a meal with your family? And he was like, well, you know, because she's irrational, because I mean, it might have been something to do with her period or something, you know, but she's irrational. <laughs> and, um, and so we went on for like what seemed like forever of this back and forth. And eventually went, oh, oh, it's not irrational to want to go for a meal with your family, is it? And I was like, no, it's not, is it? Ah, oh yeah, she should be able to go for a meal with her family, shouldn't she? And so fundamentally, this guy had not been in a context where anybody had challenged him. And the only person he was challenging him was his partner, who he believed was irrational. And so the work of change requires us to challenge men on the beliefs that women are irrational, that women are incompetent, that women are weaker, that they that they just need men to tell them what to do. And the challenge is that we spend two hours a week on a perpetrator programme with them, and then they spend the rest of the time mm. in a society which constantly perpetuates those messages through things like the, the pornography that they'll be watching, the media messages about women, you know, just look at how male politicians versus female politicians are represented. It is constant. And so there is a capacity for change, you know, and we talk about leopards not being able to change their spots. The reality is that a perpetrator is not born abusive, so he's making choices, but it's hard to change those choices when we're in a society like we are. Okay, we're going to keep talking to Natalie more about this after the break here on Badass Women's Hour XL. The Vampire Strikes Back. Badass Women's Hour XL on Talk Radio. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Here in studio with Natalie Collins talking about domestic abuse in the UK. So Natalie how do we define abuse? Because it has changed recently, hasn't it? 
Yeah, so um, in about 2015, we started to hear the term coercive control being used in the in the legal and legislative setting. Um, so that, that term comes from a, a, a forensic psychologist in the US called Evan Stark, who came up with this term called coercive control. He wrote this rather long book about it. And what he was saying is that actually what's going on with abuse is not primarily about physical violence or sexual violence. It's this wider controlling behaviour of which physical and sexual violence might be a part. Um, and so in law, we now have that if somebody is being coercively controlled, that needs to be um, seen as a, an illegal offence. And how do we know when that is coercive control and when it's just somebody being a bit demanding? Or, you know, you gave an example earlier, which is you want to go out for dinner with your friends and your boyfriend surprises you with theatre tickets. You know, that feels delightful to me. I'm like, oh, well, that's a lovely thing. I can see my friends anytime. I'll go to the theatre. What's the where's the line? So what's interesting is in the Scottish law, um, which isn't in the English and Welsh law, is it's about intention. So what is somebody seeking to achieve? What is their intention by their behaviour? Um, which is interesting because in the in the U in the England and Wales law, it's about what is the impact on the person who's mm. been abused. And what that meant was that a few months ago, a woman who'd been abused and her partner had been very very controlling, and it had been this very abusive behaviour because she was getting on with their life and seemed really strong the judge said oh it can't be um, ruled as coercive control because you're not damaged enough by it so that's shocking isn't it um but overall there's there's two there's two parallel lines around what is abuse when does something become abuse and one is about intention and the other is about impact what is the intention when when this person's doing this so there's a story that um we you can tell and um and we, we've i've done in perpetrator work where you say right a guy comes home with flowers and um he, he comes home and he says oh darling i've got flowers for you she she gets the flowers and then they have dinner and then he says oh can we have sex and she says oh no i don't really want sex and then uh then he goes oh go on go on go on and he goes on and on she still says no then he holds her down and he rapes her and the question is at what point did he intend to be abusive and the answer is if he bought flowers with the intention of forcing her into sex then the intention of those flowers even if the impact of buying the flowers but actually for her if she knows that every time he comes home with flowers she's going to have be raped then yeah. then actually the impact and so you know I've, when there may be listeners going what she's now saying buying flowers is abusive mm. That's, I'm not <laughs> saying that but what I'm saying is that actually intention is one part of it the other part is impact and so it's about how is somebody intending to behave and what does how does it feel when somebody's behaving like that so you tell us how you kind of came into this fear because you have personal experience here yeah so whenever anybody asks me I have the professional story which is that I um I started delivering programs for women in the community and then I uh started delivering work with perpetrators I've done lots of work with those within the Christian faith I wrote a program for young people about abuse and exploitation I've just written a program for women that's being piloted nationally so that's kind of the professional story um but also my the personal story is that when um when I was 17 I'd I'd grown Grown up in the, in the north of England, you may be able to tell from my accent. I'm not from the <laughs> south. And uh, I'd grown up up north in um, and when I at 17, I, I met a boy, which isn't an unreason, uh, uh, you know, it's a normal story, isn't it? And um, and I'd grown up in a, a Christian home, uh, and I'd learnt two things about relationships. Uh, they've got to be with somebody who's a Christian of the opposite sex. <laughs> number one second is don't have sex before marriage so that was it I was set now I'm set for for life and so then I uh met this boy 
and uh he was the most beautiful creature i'd ever met and i was in love with him and uh um, so I started a relationship with him and it became clear very quickly that he wasn't very safe. And I didn't have any uh, any framework to, to understand that because I'd just been told as long as he's as long as he has the same faith as you, then it's fine. That's it. <laughs> so I, it wasn't like check his character. Is he a nice person? No. Is, is he praying the same prayers as you? Yes. Good. You're in. Um, and so and the other thing, I, I didn't know anything about consent so i'd been told sex is a chocolate cake you put it in a fridge you stay out of the kitchen and what that means is that if you what's the difference between choosing to go in the cake in and eat the cake and and being dragged in the kitchen and having your face shoved in the chocolate cake you've got no framework for that and so um within two weeks he'd manipulated me into sleeping with him at that point i thought well i've got to marry him because that's what my faith requires <laughs> so at uh, two weeks into a relationship with somebody who became um, uh, incredibly dangerous that's it i'm like i've got to this is it now i'm stuck like this forever um i he would use contraception and and the use of um reproductive coercion is a massive factor recent research found that one in seven women has been forced into pregnancy or abortion in the uk mm-hmm. um which is massive and so um he wouldn't use contraception my mum had read the daily mail and thought the pill was going to give me cancer and i went to a catholic school that didn't teach about contraception so i was really set up to be in <laughs> teenage pregnancy so at 17 i was um became pregnant um and that then just increased his control over me so um i we ended up living in a bed sit he was he was so so damaging to me he made me think that I was worthless he made me hate myself he made me think that everything that he did was wrong was my fault um he used a lot of pornography and normalized very very harmful sexual behaviors um and I, I was just broken um really really broken uh, there was a couple of occasions where I attempted suicide on one of those occasions um he found me taking pills and he said go on take another one take another one take another one and um and I yeah I was totally Totally wrecked. I went. I went to a, a psychologist, and she she said, "What do you want to achieve by coming to these sessions?" And I said, "Oh, I want to. I think I want to leave my husband." And she said, "Shall we start with your childhood?" Which was like not massively helpful. And <laughs> um, by the time we were both nineteen, he was the same age as me. And by the time we were both nineteen, he'd been convicted of sex offences against teenage girls. Um, so uh, that added another element. I got punched in the face by a neighbour um, because I was married to a sex offender. Um, and there's very little that we talk about about how many sex offenders are also abusing their partners because that that that's really the only reason we'd we'd stay um and so i uh when i was 21 and um i was pregnant again with my second child and um i was six months pregnant and he assaulted me and, and my son was born three months premature and um, he was two pounds six um, and we got moved to a hospital in the northeast um, with my daughter who was t- two and a half at the time and um we were living in a hospital and it was that circumstance it wasn't that i became some strong independent woman he went right I'm gonna get out it was literally that I was in a situation where I had to I had to not be in the same town as him and it was that circumstance that enabled me to separate him from him successfully wow thank you for sharing that with us oh goodness what do you the thing that really struck me there is you said you know and I I think it's incredible strength in being able to say I didn't become this strong empowered woman that's like right I'm leaving I was literally separated and that gave me the space Do you think that that is, that's one of the reasons that so many women stay because they don't have anywhere to go? 
Yeah, so the refuge provision in the UK has been reduced dramatically and the despecialisation of the domestic abuse sector, so the government in its infinite wisdom, my politics will be showing now, but the government in its infinite wisdom decided that services should bid for contracts and so what's happened is housing associations that are not specialist domestic violence services are undercutting specialist provision that has been around for decades and so then you have non-specialist provision, you have um, government funding cutting services and it's not just about not having somewhere to go, it's things like the benefit system that uh, the way that universal credit works makes it very hard for women to leave. Um, we've seen a massive increase in women having to um, work in the sex industry, having to um, turn to prostitution in order to feed their children. And um, so, it, you know, it's horrific what is going on in terms of that. So part of it is having nowhere to go. And um, part of it is the control makes it very different, difficult to leave, you know. And all Can that. I just ask you a question? Because you've got your lovely daughter sitting mm. here and, you know, you've written this book and you're doing this amazing work. But how has this impacted you in your relationships moving forward? Yeah, so um, I got remarried. Um, I've been married to my husband now for 11 years. I call him the good one. Um, Because <laughs> uh, uh, everyone's goodies and baddies, this right? Is it, this is it. So he's, he's great. Um, I do also say that the only reason he's so brilliant is the standard of manhood is so low. So, you know, like, um, so he's he's brilliant. We've um, we've been, we got, we got married 11 years ago and he... Um, it was really interesting. So when I first entered the relationship with him, there's certain things that he challenged me on. So one time after I was at home with the kids and uh, he was working at the time and uh, he rang me one night after work and he said, oh, is it all right if I go out for um, a drink with uh, my, my co- colleagues after work? And I was like, why are you ringing me? <laughs> and he said, well, I will never presume that you're available. Those children are as much your responsibility as mine. And you might have made plans this since I last spoke to you and your plans are as important as mine. And I was like, whoa. Oh, this is crazy. And so what I think is really interesting is for a lot of women, we take on the role of being a mother and being a partner and being like doing all the emotional labor stuff. And we unless somebody uh, unless our, our male partner says, no, like this is my job, too, then we don't ever think that we should do anything different. And so um, so I think there is a challenge there for men who need to say you need to step up and not just presume because your, your partner's doing everything that they should do everything. You need to be choosing to be involved and women need to be willing to step back and say actually my value and my identity is not in whether I do all the ironing better than he does you know whatever so there's all that kind of trope of stuff coming out but um so yeah, so we've been married for 11 years. But what happened was when I first got together with him, um, my uh, daughter was four and my son was 18 months. And um, I became a total wreck because I'd had to look after these two children full time. I moved to the northeast where I didn't know anyone. And so suddenly I <laughs> I suddenly got a partner and uh, he'd been single for about 13 years. So suddenly inherits two slightly <laughs> traumatized children and a hyper traumatized crazy wife. And I became totally dysfunctional. I couldn't, I'd lose the ability to move and speak I became hyper traumatized um, and then I had to go on a whole journey of recovery which has involved becoming an expert in a post-traumatic stress I don't like to call it a disorder because actually it's not a disorder we're not disordered we're behaving normally it's normal to be dysfunctional after we've been treated dysfunctionally for so long it's the the problem is what we've been through not that we're problematic um and so yeah so i i gradually recovered and um for the last uh, six seven years he's been full-time at home with the kids and i work and do all the work that i do so yeah wow yeah yay there's some, there's some good ones out there <laughs> oh no no i i i happen to feel that there are many many good ones yeah. out there i'm just saying yay for you mm. yay for you and your journey and being such an inspiration and i'm a thinking help. about how i can raise my son so that he 
has that kind of respect for women. I think when there's brokenness early on, mm. I know we say about men not being broken, but I think when you're you're bringing up adopted children, foster mm. children, it's really challenging. It is a challenge. You know, if you're mummy number five, like I am, yeah, it's a challenge. Yeah, and um, and I think uh, so. Within the book, I there's a whole chapter I talk about there being no chrysalis season that we can't. It's not like children get to like 16 and then they become people who we need to teach about relationships. We need to be doing yeah. it from when they're born. We need to be thinking about how do we in- help them to know they own their own bodies. How do we help them to know that somebody else owns their own body and not to touch people where they don't want to and all those kind of things. Um, and and there's a whole kind of list of protective factors we can put in place for boys particularly to help them to to treat women with respect and to you know because a lot of the time when I when I have these conversations people say oh well how are you raising your daughter and I'm like can we talk more about how I'm raising my son (laughs) because that's where things will actually change and I you know I raise my daughter to know that she owns herself and that she belongs to herself um but also I I raise my son to to know that um women have a harder time in the world than men and also that that why people have an easier time in the world than people who are not white you know so it's really important that we're educating our our children and you know everyone around us you know when when my kids were little we look at the when we were watching tv programs go oh isn't it funny there's no women in in strong roles in this or there's no black people is there in this and it's about giving young people and children a critical engagement with the world so that they ask questions rather than just letting them think this is just this is how things are how it is yeah how was it for you to write the book so out of control is out now yes how was what was writing it like for you? Was it cathartic? Was it traumatic? What does it feel like? Ah, oh, I I loved writing. I love communicating. You might be able to tell. <laughs> yeah. I love, love I that. love communicating. And so for me, uh, it's interesting. I was listening to um, a podcast with uh, um, John Ronson and he was saying when he'd created a film that uh, he wondered when the magical moment was going to happen. Was it going to yeah. be when the film came out? Was it going to be at the premiere? Was it going to be? And he said all of that was just really difficult because you're waiting to see what other people think about it. And he realised the magical moment was when he wrote the screenplay. It wasn't after after that it suddenly takes on life its own and suddenly you're waiting for everybody else's thoughts on it and so actually like when I now I, that really made sense to me that writing it was the magical moment that this this sense of just this stuff flowing out of me and feeling like I'm I'm you know a, there's loads of stuff in in the book about understanding literacy about trauma and about what is abuse and why is somebody abusive and what's going on and so for me um I just I loved it because it was an opportunity to uh to bring truth and light to people um and and I think it, it, there's um, uh, a trauma theorist who's he's a brilliant called Judith Herman. She talks about how when somebody's been subjected to abuse or been traumatized, um, that one of the things that can help in recovery is having a survivor mission, having something that makes it feel like all that stuff I went through was absolutely crap. It's never going to be anything other than crap. Um, but maybe it can be something that affects change or helps other people. I, I read something, uh, I think it was yesterday, that said uh, hopefully our trauma can be a bit like compost. It's never going to not be crap. <laughs> but actually, maybe something beautiful can be grown in that crap rather than it just being awful. And so I think that for me, that's kind of the process of the book, turning the crap into something that something positive grows out of. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Natalie Collins, Out of Control, uh, Couples Conflict and the Capacity for Change is out now. Thank you so much for coming in and joining us. One, two, three, four. This has been the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton. If you want to hear more from us, you can come follow us on social media at Badass Women's Hour HR um, or leave us a review and tell us how much you love us. We really need to feel the love.
five stars should do it. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.